Who's next? Without the government, how can you even have an economy? Surely people will just be slitting each other's throats, taking their stuff, and so forth. Joining us today for the fourth time, completing the quadrilogy, is the awesome Keith Preston of attackthesystem.com. I'm Anthony Samroff. Allow me to introduce my co-host, Tom Laird. Welcome to episode 130 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. That was like my most official newscaster voice ever. Well, it worked for me. I've got wood Keith. here. <laughs> Firewood. <laughs> Keith, welcome back to the show. Um, tell us a little bit, remind people about attackthesystem.com. Well, attackthesystem.com is a website where I'm more or less the main editor. And it's a uh, website that promotes the idea of pan-anarchism, and it's sort of a forum, a clearinghouse, where we discuss all different types of anarchism and re ideas related to anarchism and overlapping philosophy, uh, as well as you know controversial topics in general. They use it usually with some kind of fringe political or anti-establishment uh, perspective. Uh, Attack the System has been online for about 20 years in different forms, so we've got a pretty large... Uh, backlog of posts. I think there's something like 9,000 posts there or something, uh, blog posts, uh, going back quite a ways. Uh, there's a number of different podcast series that we've done from the website as well. Uh, and the, the backlog of the uh, archives of the of the podcasts are all available there. Uh, and, and you can get links to some of the books I've written. I've written about half a dozen books. So all that material is located right there at attackthesystem.com. Excellent. And speaking of pan-anarchism, 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 Lord knows. Easy for you too, man. Potterchism. Um, you, you actually suggested the topic for today's show, which was different economic ideas within the anarchist canon. Uh, would you like to just quickly catch people up if they've not heard it before? Quick definition of panarchism. Uh, well, there's panarchism, and then there's what I call pananarchism. Panarchism is a somewhat more specific philosophy, and it's the idea that was developed back in the 19th century by thinkers like Paul Emile Depew and some others, which is the idea that you can actually have competing non-territorial governments. So mm. uh, a good analogy to use would be something like the way churches are typically done at least in the United States, I know in, in the UK you've still got the Church of England, but uh, but in, in a lot you of the churches. Yeah, well, in, in the U.S., you know, we don't really have a, or, and I've never had a national church. Uh, instead, churches are totally separated from the state, so uh, you can belong to whatever kind of church you want. There's competing churches. I know in my neighborhood there's a Lutheran church four buildings down the street from me and then around the corner is a Jewish synagogue and then up the street is a Methodist church and around the corner from there is a Catholic cathedral. So the idea behind panarchism is that government is kind of like churches. It's just a lot of voluntary associations that people will choose whatever kind of affiliation they want based on you know, whatever it is they believe and then they can have whatever kind of rules or whatever they want. You know, just like churches, they have a they may have a rule where you, you know, some churches, they go to church on Saturday rather than Sunday, like the Adventist or mm. something like that. Uh, on that so point, I heard it argued, I, I heard it argued by someone, can't remember who, that perhaps that's the reason why Christianity is so much more successful in America than Europe, let's say, because they didn't have a national church. There was all this uh, competition for worshippers and that led the pastors or whatever or what have you to up their game in terms of recruiting people to the church. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's certainly an interesting uh, hypothesis. I've heard that. I think it's a contributing factor. I don't know yeah. if that um, totally explains why churches tend to be more active in America than in, in, in Europe, but it's true that in, in Europe, uh, even in a lot of the countries where almost everyone is, a, is an atheist now, like, like say some of the Scandinavian countries, even there they still have official state churches, you know, so it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. did, did, that, did that actually backfire for the church? You know, it's, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but pan panarchism is kind of like that's that idea. It's a, you know, competing voluntary governments, non-territorial governments. 
Um, and then pan-anarchism is just a term that I came up with. It's just this, it just means an umbrella of all the different hyphenated forms of anarchism, like anarcho-capitalism and anarcho-syndicalism and anarcho-communism and anarcho-primitivism and all of those kinds of things. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about pan-anarchism. I've also used the term anarcho-pluralism to describe that mm. as well. What, you mean there's more than one type of anarchy? Yeah, well, there's about as many different types of anarchism as there are other philosophies put together. If you look up any dictionary or encyclopedia entry on anarchism, if it's something of any substance, you'll see that you'll have a long list of all these different hyphenated forms of anarchism, anarcho-feminism, uh, you know, green anarchism, anarchism, you know, national anarchism. Uh, but, but Keith, you misunderstand. Anyone who isn't the same type of anarchist as me isn't a real anarchist. Yeah, well, there's plenty of anarchists who claim that. If you get a, a group of anarchists in a room, you know, say, say you get 500 anarchists in a meeting hall and take a poll, you know, what is what is anarchism? You'll probably get, you know, at least 1,500 different answers. You know, you'll get more answers than there are people in the room. Right. Uh, there's, so there's quite a bit of uh, schism and sectarianism among anarchists. Sure. There's an old joke that says if you get three libertarians in a room, the only thing they'll agree with is that only one of them's a real libertarian. <laughs> Which one? So can, can I venture a, a pose a, a, a question here? So with the church analogy, I'm guessing if I put my status head on for a moment, I could say, well, look, that was fine for small communitarian organizations because they didn't have to worry about the bigger stuff like um, fending off the you know the, 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 the other neighboring tribes because the government did that for them. So that safety that they garnered from the state allowed them to be communitarian and allowed them to be anarchist, but it would be a lot more problematic if you to translate it into governments as opposed to churches because most of that stuff that's done by the state would then have to be done by the you know the, the the individual groups, and they may not be as successful as that as as what the state was. Not a great argument, but I'm sure somebody would put it forward. Well, that argument is is fairly similar to the argument that was developed by Hobbes. The idea that first you've got to have this hegemon that imposes order, so civilization or civil society can exist. But the problem with that is that idea actually didn't develop until the early modern period when the state was already starting to gain control in the way that we think of it in the present times. You know, during the during the early modern period, you had the, the Treaty of Westphalia, which ceded more, the monopoly on violence to the state. You also started to see the rise of the um, absolute monarchy. And thinkers like Hobbes, all they were really doing was you know, acting as apologists for the anti, for the absolute monarchies that were arising during this time, although there were prototypes for this in the ancient world. But anything that states do today, somebody, some other kind of group or organization has done them at some point in the past. Uh, even using the church analogy again, it's, it's not true today that all churches are just small localized groups. There are some churches that exist on an international level. Uh, you know, yeah. The Catholic Church, for example, uh, it is an international organization that has its own internal structures and hierarchies and all kinds of other uh, activities. Now, I guess they have Vatican City as their headquarters. That's recognized as kind of a micro state or something. Uh, now, a lot of anarchists don't like the Catholic Church, so maybe this, a lot of people might not like this analogy. But uh, mm. there are Catholic anarchists as well. Um, but uh, but that's an example of an organization that exists on a very large scale across national borders on an international level and carries out all kinds of functions, but it doesn't have the kind of territorial monopoly that a traditional state has, you know, I guess outside of Vatican City. Um, so it's not impossible to envision organizations of all different kinds that fulfill all kinds of functions that exist in the same way. There are plenty of groups today that exist on a, on a large regional scale, on a national scale, on an international scale that aren't states and, and I'm not talking about uh, transnational corporations and all that. Those, you know, there's a question about how 
how non-statist those are. But but I'm mm. talking about stuff like, say, the Red Cross, you know, or humanitarian organizations, or uh, something right. like Doctors Without Borders, or whatever, or uh, freelance journalistic organizations, or uh, you know, in more recent times, you've seen things like uh, Bitcoin and blockchain and all this kind of stuff. These are all things yeah. that are often coordinated, even on a global level, uh, but in a way that there's no central mechanism that's really pushing them. They're organized on a, on a global or national or whatever scale from the bottom up. Okay, that answers that succinctly. <laughs> Anthony? Yes, I was thinking of a part. So let's, let's do a little brief tour before we get into the reads. When we talk about different economic systems or angles within anarchy, what is available at the buffet? I mean, as a pan-anarchist, I believe, based on our conversations, um, that your, your view is basically let many flowers boom. Let's let all these different types of anarchism be tried and the best ones will, uh, the, the ones that yield the best results will be more widely adopted. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. That summarized my views pretty succinctly. Let a thousand flowers bloom and let the best team win. Right. Right. Okay. Very good. So, what are what are the teams? What's what's available at the all-you-can-eat buffet of anarchism? Uh, well, do you mean the hyphenated forms of anarchism generally, or just the economic schools of anarchism? The economic schools of anarchism, yeah. since that's what we're going to talk about yeah. today. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, there's a even among just the hyphenated forms of economic anarchism, um, not not including the things that are more culturally or philosophically or whatever spiritually or whatever oriented. Um, among the, the hyphenated schools of anarchism, there's a, a quite a few of those, um, and often they're somewhat difficult for some people to understand because there's so, a lot of them are somewhat far removed from what we are accustomed to in terms of our own political culture and and you know, ways we're accustomed to doing things. But um, there's a huge amount of diversity among anarchist thinkers on economic questions. Um, on on the one thing that tends to divide modern anarchists is the issue of technology. You, mm. you see some anarchists who say that technology is a, is a benefit and a, and a things that has advanced the human condition. There are others that are more critical of technology. Um, and I think when we talk about different proposed anarchist economic systems, that's one thing we have to consider because technology overlaps with economics to such a great degree that there's differences of opinion as to how beneficial technology is. You have some anarchists that are more like greens or even primitivists that they think the invention of industrial civilization was a mistake, or they think that the industrial civilization has gone too far. An idea kind of like what Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, or somebody like that had. Yeah. Well, even if they don't endorse his, his violence, they may, you know, they may agree with a lot of his general criticisms. Of course, there's anarchists that go in the other direction. They, they say that no, technology is going to be a liberating force. Uh, we even have ha anarchists that combine anarchism with transhumanism you know they say well you know in the future we're going to be able to grow new limbs like you get in an accident your arm gets chopped off no problem you'll just be able to grow a new one or uh, or uh, you know and we'll be able to have life extension where the the average human being can live 150 years and, and things like that or we'll be able to colonize space and create new space colonies and new ways of living in other worlds you know with artificial atmosphere and all kinds of stuff so, so you know, even, even on things that are this big, there's a lot of differences of opinion among anarchists. But when it comes to, to economic theory per se, of course, you've got the division between the anarcho-capitalist and then the more socialist type anarchists. Um, but even within those camps, you have quite a few different points of view um, as to what anarcho-capitalism is or, or market anarchism or laissez-faire anarchism. Uh, you know, these are all points of view that accept say market exchange and private property and all the kinds of things that you associate with capitalism or whatever, but just different ideas on how that should be defined or practiced and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have among so-called socialist anarchists, you have uh, anarcho-communists, you have collectivists, mutualists, uh, and you have other points of view that are derivative of those or that, which overlap with those or which are, are new ones that have been added in more recent times, like say communalism or, or municipalism or uh, participatory economics. There's another point of view called inclusive democracy. Uh, all of these points of view uh, are 
schools within anarchist thinking, and yet they may differ quite a bit from each other, even if they overlap in uh, many ways. But as far as some of the basic categories, uh, since some of the, the socialist versions of anarchism are somewhat older, they go back to the 18th and 19th century, um, I'll start with those. Um, one that really, I think, the one that really put anarchist ideas on the map in the 19th century was mutualism. Uh, Pierre Joseph Proudhon, who was the first modern thinker to call himself an anarchist, had this idea that he called mutualism. And mutualism was very similar to modern ideas about, say, cooperative socialism or something like that. Like, Proudhon didn't believe in the state. He thought the state was a parasite on society. He thought it existed to uh, protect the interests of the ruling class and uh, exploit the people and things like that. Uh, but he wasn't a communist uh, in mm. the sense of wanting to abolish property and things like that. Uh, now, he did make a, a distinction between personal property and you know private property in the means of production, as, as leftist-type anarchists often do. Although some of his ideas on that have to be understood within the context of the kind of society they lived in. I think that's one problem that a lot of modern anarchists, left and right, have when it comes to understanding classical anarchism, is that a lot of them don't seem to understand the social and political and economic context in which classical anarchism developed. Classical anarchism developed in what were largely feudal societies. Uh, France in the early 19th century, uh, you know, certainly societies where feudalism was, uh, there were more remnants of feudalism than what we would be accustomed to. Uh, but places like France, uh, Russia, Spain, Portugal, Eastern Europe, Latin America, uh, East Asia, these were all places where a, a feudal or quasi-feudal model of society existed. And so nowadays, when you hear people, uh, like there's the quote from Pierre Joseph Redome, property is theft. Right, well, mm. to, to contemporary people like us, that sounds like nonsense. I, that, like, what does that even mean? I could, that's like saying water is, water is dry or something, you know. But, uh, right. but uh, that, that's not what the concept of property meant in that, in that context. When they were talking about property, they weren't talking about personal items you know, like your toothbrush, you know, well, they probably didn't have toothbrushes back then, but things like, um, but they, they weren't talking about personal possessions or, or even personal property that's used for personal use. Like if you were a small freeholder, like a, a small farmer or uh, somebody that actually had a house or something like that, they were talking about private property and the means of production. And the means of production were these feudal plantations, or what we would today would be called plantations, but these feudal manorial systems, or they were, uh, you know, what libertarians call crony capitalism, which was industrial systems that were controlled and directed by the state. Uh, you know, they weren't, they, people in that time period didn't have the concept of private property the way that we do. Like in a lot of, the one, one difference between now and then is that we live in middle class societies or societies where the middle class has grown much larger or and due to technological expansion and due to uh, economic development and things like that. So in a lot of the more economically developed and technologically advanced countries today, we actually see working class people who own their own house, who own cars, who uh, you know have personal property beyond just possessions. I mean, beyond just clothes and, you know, mementos and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, you know, the idea, you know, the idea that, that you, that the idea that a working class person was a property owner was something that was alien mm. in the 19th century culture. So I think that's one thing that has to be understood, the cultural differences. So it would be fair to say that, you know, at least in Western uh, liberal democracies, as they're called, um, people can go out and earn their own stuff. And a lot of the rich people are self-made or at least their parents were self-made. But in the period where the classical anarchists were writing, most of the people who were very wealthy were very wealthy by title rather than because they'd, um, say, created goods and services that served other people. Is, right. is, is that a summary of the, that point? Yeah, because if you look at where all the different tendencies of cl within classical anarchism developed, all the m major movements within that time period, uh, the major thinkers, where did they all come from? They came from Russia, France, Spain, you know, Southern Europe, Italy. Uh, places where yeah. feudalism was still pretty much the dominant, you know, what the Marxists call the mode of production. You, you see that anarchism was actually less influential in Northern Europe. Uh, England and the UK generally, and North America than it was in countries that were more in a feudal stage, and in and in and in the uh, 
the more developed countries in the 19th century, it tended to take on a more individualistic, you know, laissez-faire type of flavor. Uh, a good example was individualist anarchism that existed in America in the 19th century with Benjamin Tucker and Lysander Spooner and Dyer Loom and, and some of those people. Um, individualist anarchism was more popular in the United States than it was in other parts of the world. It had some following in England. Uh, I know there were, I think it had some in Germany, but those were all parts of the world where industrial development was actually at, a, at, at its uh, most developed during that time period. Um, so you tended to have a more middle class type of society in those places where you had more small property holders and things like that. But individualist anarchism was more about individual property owners. Uh, they said, no, we're against communism and we're against big monopoly capitalism and things like that. You know, these, uh, these, these big industrial centers that if workers go on strike, they send out the National Guard to shoot the strikers or whatever. Mm -hmm. They would say well, their ideal, the ideal of someone like Benjamin Tucker was a, a society of, you know, of property owners, of small property owners that were engaged in a laissez-faire market type competition. Um, and they thought that would create an equilibrium in society where, where it, prevent, it would prevent extreme poverty on one hand, but it would prevent concentrations of extreme wealth on, other hand, on the other hand. And today you find people with that view as well. Like some, anarcho-capitalism within it has a range of points of view, but you find some anarcho-capitalists, the people that call themselves agorists, uh, the people that call themselves market anarchists, left libertarians, all of that is somewhat derivative of the ideas that thinkers like uh, Benjamin Tucker had. But one thing that was interesting about individualist anarchism is that Kropotkin, who was one of the godfathers of, of classical anarchism, the uh, Peter Kropotkin, who more or less invented anarcho-communism, was one of the popularized the idea of anarcho-communism, and who was a Russian, uh, he actually noticed back then, he said that it was interesting that individualist anarchism was predominantly popular in societies where you had this kind of um, um, commercial middle class that it developed in a way that you didn't see in more traditional societies. So I think that's an important cultural distinction that has to be made between these different types of anarchism is what kind of societies did they actually arise in? Okay, would it be fair to say that while um, Benjamin Tucker and Lysander Spitter are, are also seen as proto anarcho-capitalists, you know, not anarcho-capitalists, but like say the ancestors of, intellectual ancestors of anarcho-capitalists. I think Benjamin Tucker still referred to himself as a socialist. Mm -hmm. um, would it, I don't know about Lysander Spinner, but that those, what they had in common with the more European anarchists was uh, that, that sort of anarcho-capitalists might reject as a hostility towards say, landlords, people gaining money through owning property and renting it. Uh, could you elucidate on that? Because I'm, I'm not sure in my facts, I've just got a vague inclination. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, virtually all radicals of any type back then called themselves socialists, except there were some who called themselves radical liberals. Like you had uh, someone like, say, Gustav Molinari would, would have probably called himself a liberal rather than a socialist. Or certainly someone like Bastiat would have called himself mm -hmm. a, a, a liberal. Uh, so you had radical liberals. Uh, and then you also had people who called themselves socialists. But the term socialist was a broader term and, and had it somewhat different connotations than what it has today. Back then, it was simply a euphemism for uh, somebody that was concerned about what they called the social question, which really had to do with labor management relations and things like that. Um, and within people, within the spectrum of people who called themselves socialists, you had all kinds of ideas, some of which were polar opposite of each other. Um, you, in today's world, when we hear the term socialist, we, we think of a state-directed, centrally planned economy for the most part. You know, we think of something like the old Soviet Union or, or China or you know, North Korea or something like that. Or we may think of social democracy like it's practiced in a lot of developed countries where you, you know, you've got the Labor Party and you've got the, the social security and social um, uh, the welfare state and all of that kind of stuff. So nowadays, when people hear the word socialist, they're thinking of one of those two things. They're thinking of mm -hmm. the welfare state or they're thinking of, of, uh, of Marx, a Marxist-Leninist type of state. But it, socialism in the 19th century was a much wider concept. You, had, you, you, you did have people back then who wanted to have a 
a state-directed economy who had the idea, well, we're going to have you know a state that manages wealth and plans out the economy and distributes according to need. You had that, like, uh, like Louis Blanc or some of the other thinkers that came out of the French Revolution, you had thinkers like that who believed in that kind of state centralism as a type of socialism. Um, you also had people who believed in forming utopian colonies where everybody's going to you know, live according to some prescription for some kind of utopian society, things like New Harmony. And um, well, there was one that was just called Utopia, a lot of places like that. Um, and then you also had uh, Christian socialism. Uh, and this was the idea of using religion to engage in social reform. And, and, uh, and then you also had feudal socialism. And this, this, these were actually aristocrats who thought that the problem of having too many masses of poor people uh, was, a, was a social problem or created social instability. So they wanted to have some kind of social reform within the kind of noblesse oblige type of uh, framework that, mm. you, that you see in traditional societies. Uh, and then you had anarchists of different types, and then you had stuff that was similar to anarchism, cooperative socialism. Um, social democracy, the, you know, the welfare state, is uh, that emerges in, I guess, in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, with thinkers like Bernstein. Um, the, uh, the idea there was that the socialist that the that the condition of the working class had improved or the political rights of the working class had improved to the point where it would be possible to use inst conventional institutional methods to promote socialism so mm -hmm. the idea was instead of having a revolution and violently overthrowing the government and all these kinds of things we can use ordinary parliamentary democracy and stuff like that to get laws passed against say child labor or you know for for a social security system or something like that so that's all, all that's all social democracy or socialism in that context means uh, the, the when Leninism um, is, is also something that's more specific the idea behind Leninism in terms of political organization was the idea that you have an elite of professional revolutionaries who were basically self-appointed you know they call it the vanguard the self-appointed vanguard of the proletarian class or the working class or whomever and their mission is to seize power you know conspire to seize power and then create a you know a nationalized economy where the means of production is controlled by the state and centrally planned by the state that's that's leninism or bolshevism um, now there are forerunners to that in, in early socialism as well Blanc was one of them and there are others as well the idea of you know, violent revolution it sets up a dictatorship and a socialist state so there were that, that didn't originate with lenin um, you know, it's, it's, so whether that originated with Marx or not, there's different interpretations of Marx that say that, you know, that, that, that you can find a prototype for that in, in Marx. Others say, no, that's not really what Marx had in mind. But, um, but the point being is that socialism in that context meant all kinds of things. So it's, it was a wider uh, term, wide, more widely used term than what we think of as being socialism. Uh, we, mo most people today just think of socialism as any kind of government involvement in the economy or the welfare state, or yeah. maybe more or, or communism, you know, Leninism in its more extreme forms. Um, but as, as far as the question about um, what the thinkers, the individualist anarchists like Tucker believed about uh, about land and, and landlords and, and profit and all of that. Yeah, they, they had thinking that was closer to socialists than what you typically find amongst, say, libertarians today. Uh, for instance, if we could go get in our time machine and go back to say, and go back and talk to say, um, well, maybe it's Lysander Spooner, uh, certainly Benjamin Tucker, we talked to some of those people and we, and we asked them, you know, is rent a bad thing? They say yeah, or is profit a bad thing? They say yeah, or mm -hmm. uh, is uh, is uh, interest a bad thing? They would say yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas most modern anarcho-capitalists probably would not say that. They say no, there's nothing wrong with any of that as long as it still happens within a market context and voluntary exchange, private property, and all of that. But uh, but all of that though has to do with differences in economic theory. Um, mm -hmm. um, Benjamin Tucker believed that the things that socialists criticized, like profit, uh, um, interest, rent, land monopolies, all of these things that his view could only exist because of the um, privileges that various economic parties got from the state. Uh, he thought that, for example, patent law was something that had the effect of creating monopolies over particular yeah. types of products. I mean, which it does, which it does. It does. It, 
the uh, for instance, I know in in the United States, at one point I was they actually had public service announcements on the radio where they were talking about how people shouldn't patronize stores that sell knockoff goods, basically meaning pirated goods or goods yeah. that are, are made to look like some other established brand, you know, like this, yeah. like we make these tennis shoes that look like Reeboks or whatever, but they're really a knockoff. And they were saying, don't patronize knockoffs because they're engaged in you know, criminal activity or whatever. But according to the theory of someone like Benjamin Tucker, knockoffs would be fine because all you're doing is simply marketing a, a similar type of product. Yes. You know, the, the idea yeah. that, yeah, the idea is like provided provided you don't actually claim there is the genuine product, which would be a consumer fraud. As long as people are aware that it's a knockoff, it's perfectly fine. Right, exactly. Uh, so, so Tucker thought that patents created monopolies that allowed for huge monopolies uh, and and profit margins that you know beyond what a uh, you know a, a natural exchange system of exchange would actually produce. Um, and he had similar ideas about uh, banking, about interest. He thought that legal tender, the state's mo monopoly over the issue of currency, yeah. <clears throat> prohibiting alternative forms of tender, created uh, a lopsided interest system. You know, he thought it was, you know, it, uh, and many, many other anarchists have had this, this uh, similar ideas to this, but the idea was that you know, banking, as we understand it, basically is just legalized loan sharking because the uh, the uh, banks have all sorts of monopolistic privileges that come from uh, different things. But one big one was the monopoly over legal tenders. That was another criticism that Tucker had of interest. Uh, and Proudhon, he actually, Tucker lifted a lot of his ideas from Proudhon. Proudhon had, had a, a similar theory of banking where he thought that interest, uh, you know, debt slavery and things like that would were made possible by the state because of the relationship between the state and, and finance. Um, because he thought that uh, the you know, what, what they used to call usury, you know, like, you know, yeah. you know, when America we call predatory lending or whatever, or they thought that that was made possible by the relationship between financial institutions and the state. Um, so all of these kinds of ideas they envisioned happening uh, or changes they wanted, they envisioned happening within the context of a non-state society. Now, they weren't about saying, okay, we're going to have a state that outlaws charging interest, or we're going to have a state that outlaws land ownership or things like that. We're simply going to say, without all of these kinds of favors that these kinds of interests get from the state, then you couldn't really have the kind of profit margins you see monopolistic corporations have making, or you couldn't really have usurious interest, or you couldn't really have landlords charging inflated rents because they thought the they thought the market or just the just mm. the natural systems of exchange wouldn't support that. They thought that could only happen with it in this kind of lopsided system that the state created. So we were at a libertarian meetup for our sins on Sunday. And one of the new guys said something like anarcho-communism, that doesn't even make sense. Like how could you, uh, I can't remember the end of the question, but something like that. And I was like the, the, the general idea, I believe taking on from your point is that they believe that without the government to pro to enforce the property rights of capitalists, there could be no capitalism. Therefore, that capitalism was an inherently statist system. Could you take on from that? Yeah, it, there, the, the actual theory of anarcho-communism is similar to what I just described, the individualist anarchist as being except it's more radical. And that is, they tend to think that pro private property beyond, say, individual possessions would not be possible minus the state. They say, okay, where does property rights come from? And their view is something that's artificially created by the state because the state creates this idea called property and then enforces it by law. So they thought that if people existed in a natural society outside of any kind of coercive apparatus of the state that um, while you could still have you know, brigands and robbers and stuff like that, uh, they thought that it, a system of actual voluntary exchange would be based on uh, reciprocal reci reciprocity or um, reciprocal exchange. So yeah, you wouldn't yeah. really have markets that are oriented towards production for profit in the way that you find with 
conventional commercial societies. Uh, instead, you would basically just have systems of exchange where, uh, right, this this person grew X amount of tomatoes and this person grew X amount of husks of corn or whatever. So they're going to trade corn for tomatoes or whatever because one person wants corn, the other person wants uh, wants uh, tomatoes. Or they thought people would be more inclined to engage in voluntary cooperation, and um, and so you would have a more communal society where, say, you know, workers working in the field grow crops. All right, where do the crops go? Well, they go in a common storehouse, and then when the workers want to go eat, well, then they go get you know whatever crops or whatever they need out of the food food sources they uh, they want out of the storehouse. And that the, the phrase that the, the communists have. Um, from each, what is it? From each according to his abilities, to each according yeah. to his needs. That's the, that's the anarcho-communist understanding of this. They say that minus the state, there's not going to be class divisions based on property ownership, and, and there's not going to be much in the way of you know actual property the way we understand. Instead, it's just going to be voluntary cooperation based on reciprocal exchange and co- pooling resources as they're needed for you know common common self sustenance. That's that's anarcho communism, you know, broadly defined. Um, so, so does everyone does everyone get a unicorn as well? And what? <laughs> Does it, a unic? Did you say a unicorn? Does everyone get a unicorn as well? <laughs> so okay, I, I detect some satire there. But well, so my question was going to be: so when it comes to that, I mean, I I, I hear that phrase um, from old, especially older lefties. You know, from each according to their 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 ability to each according to their need. Mm-hmm. And for me, it seems to pre- present a problem of well, who gets to decide? who needs and who can provide and who, how much you can take from that person to give to that person. That it, Then you create a technocracy of people who decide, oh, you don't really need that. That guy does, you know. Uh, and then, then you have to back that up with force if somebody doesn't want to hand over uh, the, their property. Yeah, well, the, the obvious argument against that is, well, what if I decide that my ability is I can't really do much of anything, but my needs are quite abundant, so I'm going to go take yeah. stuff, you know, but I'm not going to contribute yeah. much. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, though, that what, what anarcho-communists, uh, the, the, more, the more serious anarcho-communists, I mean, there's within all political system, theories, there's you know, people that take, go to way out extremes and have just really bizarre views about a lot of stuff, yeah. but... Um, Anarcho-communists that are more serious about their ideas, I, um, the ones that I discussed and read, discussed this with or read uh, their their writings, um, I think what they envision is something more like uh, systems. Like there's a there's a group that we have in the United States called the Federation of Egalitarian Communities, which is a uh, a collection of communes where these are actual income sharing communes. And you might have say a hundred people. There's one not far from where I live, but there's about a hundred yeah. people say that live in a in a commune, and they may collectively labor to maintain the commune in terms of you know mowing the grass or you know watering the crops or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also work that's performed. Like I know there's a place uh, near me that uh, one of the things they do is they make hammocks. They actually have a hammock making business. So everyone that lives there is expected to contribute to the make, making hammocks and things like that. Uh, and this place that I'm talking about now has actually been in existence for something like 40 or 50 years or something like that. It's been in existence yeah. for a while. So there are anarcho-communists who take their ideas seriously. And these are the kinds of institutional arrangements that they uh, develop or you know I, I knew a, a person once who was a, a Catholic who was also an anarcho-communist and they say yeah communism works and meet priests and nuns do it what do you think a monastery is yeah um, mm. so that's more right. their idea of what well, well, yeah isn't that the case that then anarcho-communism or anarcho-socialism if you want to it works it can work reasonably well within small Groups. I mean, it can work within. I mean, you're, when you think about your family, your family's basically quite social. You know, I help my brother out, he helps me out, and everybody knows what everybody's involved of, and everybody knows when somebody's, uh, if I can use the expression here in the UK, pulling the piss. You know, if they're not mm-hmm. contributing and if they're, if they're, you know, if they're work shy. So everybody knows that within a small group. But when you when it gets bigger, that presents a problem. In your opinion, Keith, at what point? I mean, what size a community? Does it start to present a problem? Is it over sixty people, over a hundred people? What what's is there a is there a sort of 
a general term of where you can go that doesn't really work when you start getting over that amount of people? Uh, there are actually theorists who've written about this who say, what is the ideal size commune? And the, yeah. or the norm is usually anywhere from a few dozen to maybe a few hundred. Uh, there's, I haven't come across that many thinkers who seriously believe you could have a, an actual commune that's, uh, you know, that includes millions of people as participants. Now, they may say, well, you can have a federation or an agglomeration of communes mm. that include large amounts of people that are networked together and you know, one yeah. group will share with another group as necessary. Like, let's say this group over here, this commune, well, they're, you know, they're plumbing burst or something like that. Well, we've got a lot of plumbers that live in our commune, so we'll go over there and help them uh, fix their plumbing. And then over yeah. in their commune, they, they're, they're good at... Uh, you know, um, basket weaving or whatever. So when we need new baskets, we'll go talk to them and get some baskets from them. Um, so there are, and there are groups that practice this on some level. There are, you know, some of the groups I was just talking about really do practice this on some level. Um, a lot of the theorists of anarcho-communism and other similar views tend to postulate this idea of you can really only have a small uh, tribe-like, village-like community, like the proponents of eco-villages. That's a common mm -hmm. idea that's somewhat similar to anarcho-communism. Or there's E.F. Schumacher's idea that small is beautiful. Kirkpatrick Sale wrote about this. He was a, 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 an anarcho-communist so, somewhat. He was influenced by that tradition, but he was more into ecology and stuff like that. But I think he once postulated that 500 people was like the maximum size you could have in, a, in any kind of commune that would exist in a really communal way. Um, mm. there's, uh, there's another utopian novel that a lot of anarchists, socialist type anarchists like, it's called Bolo Bolo. Uh, and it was, came back, it was a, a German writer wrote it in the uh, early 80s and it postulates this world of uh, all these little tribe-like communities he calls Bolos. And you know, they're basically just small groups of people that have their own communes, but then they're interconnected with each other on a worldwide scale. Uh, and they're engaging in all kinds of you know, tra trade with each other through networks and things like that. That's one of the ideas that some anarcho-communists have. Um, the, um, although, getting back to the, uh, the idea of context and time periods, once again, the, the anarcho-communism was developed in societies where the, the, the feudal tradition was largely still intact, which meant you really did have these peasant communes uh, mm. where you did have these kind of eco-village-like communities, uh, you know, even though they were under the rule of you know, the, the feudal landlords and that kind of stuff. But a good example was Russia. Um, you know, Kropotkin and Bakunin and some of the other Russian anarchists had this idea that the peasant, the Russian peasant community was the model for anarcho-communism. Or in Spain, a similar tradition developed because it was a similar type of society, a, a traditionalist, agricultural, you know, church and king type of society. And they thought that the peasant communal tradition in Spain uh, was going to be a, a solid basis for uh, anarcho-communism in the future. Uh, there was an anarcho-communist movement in China that also had similar ideas. They thought the, you know, the traditional Chinese village community and the village communes were, uh, or, were would be a basis for, for anarcho-communism. So it's, 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 these ideas, I think, are culturally alien to a lot of modern people, which is why right. a lot of people, I think, have a hard time understanding them because they don't understand the cultural context in which they emerged. You know, they make more sense if you look at it from that perspective. You know, what, the, the people who formulated these ideas, what kind of societies did they actually live in? and What kind of institutions yeah. are they familiar with? And how did that shape their perceptions? Yeah, I sometimes feel that when I'm speaking to anarcho-communists, or though I haven't for a while, I wish they would understand the context in which those ideas were first formed, uh, because I feel like some of them are carryover. You know, they're still holding the same ideas in a context which they're no longer relevant, in my opinion. I think to highlight a couple of differences, when it comes to personal property, you know, You'd be lucky to have a television in your house at one point. Now, you can't be bothered going downstairs to watch the television, so you need one in your room as well. And then maybe uh, you might get bored while you're sitting on the toilet, so you'll have a little screen in your bathroom as well. And which, and what point does this become exceeding of your needs and should be uh, socialized to someone who doesn't have the means to even have one television? And another point, the, the 
the lines between the means of production and personal property are so blurred. I mean, this laptop, I use it to send personal emails. I also use it to create this podcast. So is it not a means of production? Is it not up for grabs? And uh, I, I know Ayn Rand wasn't the first person to point it out. Well, she might not have been. I think she got it from another economist whose name escapes me. But she stated very clearly, the original means of production is the human mind here between our heads. So um, yeah, that, 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 blur, that line between what is a means of production and what isn't has been increasingly blurred the more technologically advanced we become. Well, I think that's true in, in, in many levels, although I think if someone like Benjamin Tucker or Fredona, whoever were here today, they, they would certainly say that your, your, your body is your personal property, and they would probably say that uh, you know, something that you use for personal purposes, whether it's production or something else, like, like your laptop, they would say, yeah, that's a legitimate form of private ownership. I think today what they would tend to be more critical of would be things like um, what libertarians call crony capitalism. And that is the, the relationship between the state and commercial institutions that has the effect of distorting the way in which production is done that creates monopolies and oligopolies and stuff like that. Now, the big issue there is how far can you extend the critique of crony capitalism? Like, you know, I, I see a wide range of ideas among that. Among anarchists who accept the legitimacy, say, of private property or markets or market exchange, uh, who wouldn't necessarily identify as an anarcho-communist, I have also seen a wide range of opinion on this issue about you know, how far can we extend the critique of crony capitalism. Like there are some, there are some libertarians, uh, you know, more conservative libertarians, who say, well, you know, the, the system we have is basically a market system. It's basically a free market system. It's only been distorted on the margins by, say, corporate welfare or central banking or the welfare state or something like that. Uh, but the system we have is basically a free market system. So even without those things, you know, even if we didn't have central banking or corporate welfare, or the welfare state, we'd have more or less the same kind of economy we have now with some maybe some differences. Um, then you have people who take a much further, more radical point of view who say, no, virtually the, the entire structure of production as we now know it is, is crony capitalism. And without that, uh, we would have a much different type of society that we have now. Um, for instance, I, I know a guy who is a hardcore anarcho-capitalist, uh, definitely doesn't like anarcho-communists at all, but he says, you know, without intellectual property law, without patent law, most of our major corporations around the world just couldn't exist you know, because they wouldn't be able to claim product monopolies and you could have not, you could sell knockoff products and all that all you wanted to. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's a that's an interesting question, you know. And then yeah, I find myself. I don't know if I'd go as far as he would, but I find myself more in that camp than a lot of the other libertarians that really? I spoke. Like, Shock. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, Anthony Anthony Samaroff and and intellectual intellectual property defense. Shock. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not defending intellectual property. I might have misspoke. What I'm saying right. is that <laughs> I find myself much more in the camp of thinking that a lot of the big corporations wouldn't be so big without government oh. interventions. Well, a lot of true, yeah. Then a lot of libertarians I've spoken to who seem to think that, um, well, yeah, I mean, they might get some benefits from the government, but given what they pay in taxes, it probably balances out or they probably pay more in taxes than uh, the corporate welfare they receive or yada, yada, yada. I mean, Amazon, what annoys me is sometimes when they talk about these corporations, they're like, Amazon doesn't pay their taxes. They never care to mention that Amazon in, is in receipt of huge government handouts. Even here in Scotland, the Scottish government have handed out to Amazon. I saw one article that said that Google had received 650 billion in handouts from government. So yeah, yeah, that's, um, a, that's an issue. I, would, I, don't, I, I wouldn't mind it so much if it was a loan. They said, look, here's this startup loan, but you have to pay it back. Um, but to just give them a hand it. But taking the taking the, the, the corporate welfare out of it aside, when people say, you know, Jeff Bezos doesn't pay his taxes, well, you know the old Carnegie argument. It's like, well, look, what, what do you mean I don't contribute? I employ millions and millions of people who possibly wouldn't have a job 
if I hadn't have provided an opportunity for them. Mm. And each one of those person earns money and they then spend it back into the economy. They buy goods and services with that money that they earn and they contribute. So how can you possibly say I don't, even if I didn't pay one single penny in tax, yeah. I'm still contributing. You know? and, uh, but then again, uh, we're not again, we're not for anybody paying tax. So well, the argument, the counter argument to that would be that okay, uh, go that, for it, uh, Keith. That somebody like Bezos is shifting the cost of public infrastructure onto the taxpayers at large, uh, which yeah. basically rank and file consumers and, and workers who pay taxes. Uh, the, the criticism of someone like him that that more left leaning libertarians or, or certainly anarcho communists would have would be that, all right, Bezos doesn't pay taxes, all right, but he still benefits from the public infrastructure that uh, that the state creates on all kinds of ways, whether it's direct corporate welfare, or whether it's the you know infrastructure that's used to deliver uh, Amazon's products, you know, the transportation systems and things like that. So essentially what he's doing is he's shifting the cost of his overhead, business overhead, onto the state, which means because he's not paying taxes, He's shifting it onto the cost of workers, his employees who do pay taxes, or and the consumers who pay taxes. So that's that's the, uh, another argument like that involves the uh, the Walmart company. Uh, mm. uh, Walmart gets criticized in this way because, for example, if Walmart wants to set up a superstore in a city in the United States, what they what the local local government will sometimes do is they'll use the power of eminent domain. So they'll just seize some land. Yeah. Bro, yeah. To build a parking lot and build a facility for Walmart to do business out of and generate business and, 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 and cities will do this to try to lure Walmart in because they think Walmart is good for economic development. Yeah, uh, I'm, again, I'm again that kind of, uh, that, yeah. that, that would be included in corporate welfare. I mean, because in terms of people say who will build the roads, well Walmart will build the goddamn roads because if they want somebody to come and shop at their superstore they're going to figure out some sort of way to get them there you know uh and to do that so and then if and if they don't want to do it somebody else will provide th that market yeah. or i, I uh, firmly I, believe that i was in one part of glasgow recently and i was at a bus stop and interested to find out that there was actually a bus coming to drop people <laughs> off at the asda superstore Asda is owned by Walmart. It wasn't always. It's it's just like a superstore. We don't really have we don't really have superstores of the size of Walmart's here. I don't think. But it was quite interesting that it had its own bus to take people to the shop. So that's that that's the kind of ingenuity you want. But yeah, was, I the, mean, bus, was the bus subsidised by the local council? Though? I really hope not. I really hope okay. not. But it's the kind of thing you'd expect to see. On a free market, I think. Okay. Um, I, I just wanted to make. I don't really want to defend Jeff Bezos. I think he's a no. I, 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 I think he's a bit of a dick. But I would yeah. also add that you know stuff like Amazon and Walmart radically reduced the cost of many goods and services. So in that way, they do actually increase living standards. How much of their success is due to um, genuine grit and innovation, and how much is due to government intervention in the market, I don't know, but that is the problem when you have a government that's even capable of intervening in the economy. Yeah. Another actual criticism that's raised of some of these companies is actual transportation subsidies. They mm. say that because it's the state that creates the uh, infrastructure of transportation, uh, the highways and, and streets and bus and train systems and, and you know, Airlines are either, you know, or airports are often state-run mm. facilities. Without all of that, if if companies whose business model is dependent heavily on supply chain management, uh, like superstores or like Amazon or someone like that, and where shipping is a major um, consideration, if they had to pick up all the costs of that themselves, you know, how would that impact their business model? That's another criticism. Right. So yeah. Time Go for it, No, no, don't carry on. I, I was just basically going to ask Keith if you want to talk about some of the other uh, forms of anarchist economic thought. I don't think we need to go into uh, anarcho-capitalism because most of our listeners are libertarians. But anything that you feel like you've you, you've missed out, given that we've got you know five minutes and change left. 
Um, well, as far as the, the, the one thing that, again, did, um, divides market-type anarchists from socialist anarchism has to do with this idea of property and what would an economy that didn't have a state actually look like. And they tend to lean, the, the, the anti-capitalist anarchists tend to lean more towards the idea that people would be naturally cooperative in a society where you don't really have class divisions that in their view were created by private property as they understand it, uh, creating competitive uh, societies that they see as pathological. So they think that people are not necessarily competitive by nature. People may be more cooperative by nature if they live in a society with a set of institutional arrangements that is conducive to that. And that gets back to some all these questions about human nature, you know, like, or, or he, is human nature fixed? Is human nature malleable? Are humans basically competitive or predatory or humans basically combined mm. or cooperative? Uh, you know, um, different schools of anarchism reflect differences of opinion and different degrees of opinion about some of these questions. Uh, I think that's one important uh, philosophical debate of, that underlies some of these things. Um, although I also think that some of it comes down to how do you how do you interpret economic theory? Uh, the the socialist or communist anarchists will have this idea that um, these a lot of the things that they criticize about capitalism couldn't exist without the state. They think that the state creates the preconditions for these kinds of institutions, organizations, or practices to arise. Um, you know, I, I was talking about this with an anarcho-communist once, and he was saying that well, market exchange would only be a peripheral thing in anarcho in anarcho-communism because that's not really the kind of economy you'd have with anarcho-communism. You know, just without the state, you know, then a natural economy would be something more like a gift economy or uh, or a uh, or a uh, system just based on exchange, just based on exchange rather than rather than uh, commercial exchange for profit. Um, and, you know, they'll, they'll cite various historical examples and things like that. You know, like I, I, I came across one guy once who talked about how in the Aztec civilization, they didn't have markets. They just had reciprocal exchange from between regions and stuff like that. Although their system was very feudal, feudal when they had slavery yeah. and stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. That and they sacrificed cool. children to their gods. Yeah. Well, that's, there's certainly certain things. I, I think most anarcho-communists today would want to, repeat some of that but it's a bit yeah it's a damn it's, i thought that was the only good thing about them bring back the child sacrifice yeah. well the you know there's a it's, it's it's not a good model from which you want to hold up as your ideal society um yeah but it's uh okay it, can i just can i just can i just stick an oar in here and say i could probably make an argument that we do more child sacrifice these days than the aztecs did uh but I think Anthony knows what I'm driving at there. But I know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, have you cottoned on yet, Keith? <laughs> and what? Have you cottoned on to uh, Tam's drift? <laughs> that we do more child sacrifice now than the than probably the Aztecs ever did. Um, well, I've, uh, heard, I've uh, heard pro-life people, people who have heard Yeah, yeah, people. basically that's it, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah the anti-abortion argument, yeah, is, is that. Yeah. Anyway, I was just that was just being naughty, so to carry on. <laughs> That's okay. A cheeky A side. Well, yeah. Would you like to finish your point? Um, yeah, I think that the, the the most interesting question about anarchist economics, I think, is what would this this speculation about what would a stateless economy actually look like? How individualistic would it be? How collectivist would it be? Uh, you know, how um, oriented towards market exchange would it be? How oriented towards uh, you know, communalism or communal living would it be? Uh, there's, there's other, that overlaps with other factors as well. Like what would be the rate of technological progress? What kind of social and cultural institutions would you have? Uh, for instance, there are some anarchists who say, well, uh, you know, that with anarchy, everybody's going to be super liberal and permissive in their cultural orientation. You know, everybody's going to have sex with everybody else and take drugs and, and, you know, party all the time. That's, that's, what, that's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> right, well, that's one, one version. I don't care about them having sex with everyone else. I care about them having sex with me. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then the, uh, then there's another point of view, though, that, that has actually argued, like Hans Hermann Hoppe makes this argument that in a stateless society, people are actually going to be more conservative because people are going to have to be more dependent on their community or their family or 
you know, their, their church community or religious community or, or something like that, uh, because they're not going to be able to have the state backing up, backing them up. So, for example, if you, you know, when you get old and you retire, you're not going to be getting a pension from the state or whatever. So you're going to have to be dependent on your children, which means you have to have a, or your family, which means you're going to, or your community, which means you're going to have to actually be more community oriented and develop uh, relationships with other people. And, and which in their view, uh, leads towards a more uh, conservative social atmosphere because it's about the group rather than the individual and things like that. So there's all different kinds of uh, perspectives on this that you find among people who would self-identify as anarchists. Nice. So before we once, go, once again, Keith, uh, we feel as if we've just scratched the tip of the the iceberg once more. Uh, when I suppose as we've been speaking to you, there's so much to take in. It's been fantastic. Yeah, you are a veritable living encyclopedia of anarchism. So before you let we we let you go, what are your views on Hans Hermann Hoppe? Some of his views have been considered to be controversial. Um. Well, I've actually written about him both positively and negatively. I, I wrote a review of his book, Democracy, the God that Failed, uh, when it came out. Uh, and I wrote a very positive, glowing, glowing review. Now, that was some time ago. That was probably in the early, early 2000s. Um, but uh, I, thought, I thought it was interesting work because one thing that I think is important for anarchists is to debunk the legitimacy of the kind of states that we actually have. Like you don't find that many people in contemporary, you know, in industrial liberal democracies like we're familiar with, who seriously think an absolute monarchy or, or some kind of religious theocracy or military dictatorship or Soviet type society or Nazi Germany who think those are ideal societies. Most people will say that, you know, the kind of systems we're familiar with, no, that's the best, you know, like, like what's the saying, democracy is the, the, the worst system except all the others. Well, that's kind of conventional yeah. wisdom, right? So when you have someone like Hans Hermann Hoppe, who's actually pointing out a lot of problematic aspects of modern democracy from both the theoretical perspective as well as a results-oriented and practical perspective, that's really yeah. interesting. Um, now, I also wrote a, a follow-up to that review where I actually took him to task for some of his more um, conservative social views. I may have overstated some of my criticisms of him on some of that, just like I probably overstated some of my praises of some of his other ideas. Uh, but uh, but I, I do think that he has this idea that, well, um, it, it's almost like he has this idea, well, without the state, uh, we're going to go back to an almost feudal type of mm -hmm. um, cultural arrangements. You know, it's all going to be about, you know, we're not going to really have the king in the traditional sense. We're just going to have the, uh, the anarcho king, you know, and the, yeah. the the big man who's the big property owner and the the, the patriarchal, almost like the paternal familias or something like yeah. that. It's, uh, yeah. He seems to have a lot of ideas on that line. Now, I think some of the things that are said about him are, are smears. You know, there's a lot of more left libertarians who, who say he's really just a fascist under another name or something like mm -hmm. that. I don't agree with that. I think it's a misinterpretation of his views. But he strikes me as, as having views somewhat similar to Eric von Kunat Ladin, who was a, a Catholic monarchist who was very critical of modern liberal democracy, but arguing that it was actually a degeneration that promoted less liberty than a, than a traditional society. Uh, you know, so Hoppe kind of takes anarcho-capitalism that he got from Rothbard and combines it with this critique of modern liberal democracy that you see from a more traditionalist. I don't, I don't know what Hoppe's religion is, if he has one, but it's, more, it's almost like the more traditional Catholic uh, yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Of I, I would agree. Hoppe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's an agnostic, he mentioned on Michael Malice's show. But it's interesting because uh, he's conservative enough that when I stridently heard him talk about the war against the war and saying that it caused blowback and things like that, I was almost surprised um, to hear him talk so stridently about, you know, war in the Fed. It is an interesting thing because he definitely has an elitist streak. He might even admit that himself. But to some people, it might sound like an almost aristocratic yeah. streak. Like he wants the return of aristocracy, which is fine for me as long as I'm one of the aristocrats. Well, you have that kind of thinking among some more traditional conservative thinkers that were, uh, in fact, I even gave a talk about this um, a few years ago to the H.L. Mencken Club, I, I 
the uh, my assigned topic was anarcho-fascism, but the that was that was intended to be somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But and I didn't come up with the title myself. But it was about the right-wing anarchist tradition, or there's or or the kind of quasi-anarchistic tradition you see in some traditionalist thinkers. Like a good example is J.R. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, this kind of anarcho-monarchism or something like that. Mm -hmm. you have yeah. You have some of these traditionalist thinkers who have this idea, well, this, the, the ideal society is a traditional society that's village and community and family and parish-based and the modern state and bureaucracy and all of that has inserted so all com that. Competing principalities sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, so I, I actually gave a time, I guess we could do another podcast on that sometime. I actually gave a lecture about that a few years ago to a, to a conservative organization in the United States. Uh, yeah, so there's, yeah, the, the thinking about these kinds of things really is very fast. Well, Keith, you are certainly the king of the anarchists. Thank you very much <laughs> for joining us the fourth time on Scottish Liberty Podcast. You're a very popular guest. Hope to speak to you again. Thank you.